From NPR News, this is Foreign Dispatch, a weekly roundup of some of the best coverage of news and events filed by NPR's correspondents from around the globe. I'm Kevin Beasley. This week, burying the victims and helping the survivors of the Philippines' typhoon, corruption and tribalism in Kenya's police force, and relaxing the one-child policy in China. In parts of the Philippines ravaged by Typhoon Haiyan, the Catholic Church stepped in to help survivors where the government was slow to act. 80% of Filipinos are Roman Catholic, and NPR's Anthony Kuhn sent us this story of one parish and its priest. Three young men are digging a grave in the San Joaquin Parish churchyard. They roll an unidentified body wrapped only in blue plastic sheeting up to the grave on a squeaky trolley. They drag the body into the pit, which is too small for it. The soft, sandy soil falls from their shovels, and in a minute the crumpled blue figure has disappeared under the earth. The local priest, Father Kelvin Aparillo, watches nearby as his parishioners are buried in these temporary graves. He's developed a close bond with his parishioners since his archdiocese transferred him here in June. San Joaquin Parish is just outside the ruined provincial capital, Tacloban. Father Kelvin points to the grave of a mother and child he knew. When the news came to me, you know, I, was really, I was really down because we were talking that day because we celebrated the Mass you know, at 5.30 since they always uh, came you know, to, to attend the Mass. So I was shocked. I, I would say that I also was affected. Father Kelvin rode out the storm on the second floor of the church. When the waters subsided, he said, bodies lay scattered around the building. I was able to recover you know, a, a bottle of holy water, so I started blessing the dead bodies. You also feel destroyed emotionally, but I have to be strong. I don't want them to see me crying because they would also feel down. Now two-thirds of his 600 parishioners are either dead, missing, or have left for somewhere else. Father Kelvin says many of those remaining worry that he's going to leave too. Whenever they see me walking, they would ask me, Father, are you leaving? No, I'm not leaving, no. I just want to talk to you. If you suffer, I suffer with you. If you laugh, I laugh with you. The experience of one is the experience of all. That bell, it didn't sound like a normal bell sound. Is it something happened to the bell? Yeah, the, the normal sound is really, you know, it's very beautiful. You know? But I, I guess you know, it was also destroyed by the typhoon. Father Kelvin presides over Mass in the damaged church, where shreds of corrugated roofing flap in the breeze. Before the government could deliver any aid, assistance began to reach San Joaquin Parish through church networks. Jennifer Hardy of Catholic Relief Services says the church has been a crucial institution in helping communities to recover from the typhoon. It's an effective channel for distributing aid and... Often the church is one of the best record keepers in the community. So to understand where people are living, what they have lost, which people have left after Typhoon Haiyan hit this area, when they will be coming back, the church can often be one of our best resources for that information. (laughs) 
As he struggles to make sense of the loss his parish has suffered, Father Kelvin says he feels a huge sense of gratitude for his parishioners. He says they, in a sense, have converted him and continually reinforced his sense of his own calling as a priest. I would experience every week no, a little conversion no, from them and from myself. No? It, it's not that, that I do something no, for them. Actually, no, it's they doing something for me. You become more prayerful, you become more, uh, more dedicated as a pastor. That's how I see it. Anthony Kuhn, NPR News. Coming up, corruption and nepotism in Kenya's police force and relaxing the one-child policy in China. The terrorist attack in September at Nairobi's Westgate Mall was doubly shocking for many Kenyans. First, for the violence carried out by Islamist gunmen against innocent choppers, and then for the video evidence released a month later that showed security forces looting the mall when they were meant to be liberating it. As NPR's Gregory Warner reports, it was seen as a stark illustration of widespread police corruption in Kenya. James Kusimba remembers the exact day he hit the glass ceiling. It was June of 1996. He'd been in the elite Kenyan Special Forces for six years. He'd served in the even more elite Kenyan Presidential Guard. But he was still making the equivalent of $87 a month. So he applied for a course to become a sergeant and earn more money. I answered all the questions that were put to me, and I answered all of them correctly. But I was not successful for the promotion. James did not score high enough to take the sergeant's course. But he was tapped to teach that course the following term, to teach the very material he supposedly wasn't ready to learn. The same thing happened the following year, and the next year, and the next. I still was called upon to train the people who had qualified for a course I was not qualified to attend. So over time, I got disillusioned and decided to, to look around again. That's how I left the, the, the police force. Yeah. James turned in his badge in 2004. He's now a security officer for DHL, the shipping company. His salary now is more than three times that of a Kenyan police sergeant, the rank he never attained. And you'd think he'd be happier about that. But he still feels like he missed his calling as a cop. It was very difficult for people coming from some regions to get a breakthrough and get promoted to senior ranks. His was the wrong region, the wrong tribe, the wrong last name. And while you hear a lot of talk in Africa about a culture of impunity, this allows bad behavior to go unpunished. Talking to James and other former cops, I heard the flip side of that story. Good behavior goes unrewarded. And this drives many ambitious, would-be civil servants to quit. Because that frustration... George Musamali is another ex-cop. He now runs his own security company. Poor pay, nepotism, promotions do not come on merit... You see, all that kind of rot makes people get frustrated and they leave the force. There's a local expression for this sense of frustration and uncertainty. They say here we feel like we are a drunkard's cockerel. A drunkard's rooster, we would say. Because remember, the rooster or the cockerel, it's the most valuable chicken in the coop. But when the drunkard who controls these chickens' fates comes home sloshed and starving, anyone's neck could go on the block even the roosters. So people in the service are feeling like a drunkard's cockerel, quite unsure of themselves. They don't know what will happen tomorrow. Will I be in service or uh, I would have been kicked out? 
and not because I'm incompetent, because uh, somebody somewhere for political reasons feels uncomfortable working in me. When you can't plan for tomorrow, he says, you grab whatever you can today. This short-sightedness, he says, has been corroding Kenya's security forces for years. It was exposed to the world when footage from the Westgate Mall seemed to show Kenyan soldiers looting cell phones and cash from the very stores they were supposed to be protecting. Kenya's top officials have now vowed to root out corruption. They've even promised a pay raise. But current and former security officials I've spoken to say that real reform means putting aside entrenched tribal politics and reversing a longstanding brain drain. That'll take more than just punishing a few cops for instances of bad behavior. It means starting to reward individuals when there's work well done. Gregory Warner, NPR News, Nairobi. To China now, where many people welcomed a recent announcement that the government plans to further loosen the country's one-child policy. Some couples there are already allowed to have two children. Now more will be allowed to do so, if they can afford it. NPR's Frank Langford reports from Shanghai. A young professional couple, surnamed Gao and Dung, went to a government office here earlier this month to apply for a marriage license. Waiting on a metal bench, Gao, the 30-year-old groom-to-be, said he was glad more couples will be able to have a second child. I felt pretty happy. I think for people like us who were born after 1980s, this is a very good policy change. Now if families are financially capable and conditions allow, they should totally have two children. Deng, the bride-to-be, who wore a long pink dress, agreed. We really hope we will have two children. They can help each other and grow up together. When we get older, they can take care of each other. In fact, Deng and Gao are already permitted to have two children. More than a decade ago, the government here began allowing couples to have two kids if both parents were only children. It's a reminder that China's been easing its one-child policy over the years. Officials took a further step in that direction this month. They announced that if just one parent is an only child, a couple can have a second child as well. That's an incremental change, but many see it as progress after years of lobbying. My name is Wang Feng. I'm a professor of sociology at the University of California, Irvine, and also a professor at Fudan University in Shanghai, China. Wang is a leading demographer. He spent more than a decade urging Chinese officials to change the one-child policy. Until relatively recently, he says, the topic was too sensitive for public discussion. Three years ago, I was turned away from um, a television studio minutes before uh, they were going to discuss this in their evening program because of the orders from the state uh, news control organization. Wang credits this month's policy change to a new, more confident group of Chinese leaders who took office earlier this year. He says they seem to recognize the policy has created big demographic problems in China, including a rapidly aging society and a shrinking labor force. The policy is also very unpopular. It's led to abductions, forced abortions, and cost Chinese parents more than $4 billion in fines last year alone. This is an important gesture that the government is getting out of our bedrooms. And also the government is finally reacting to the decade-long appeal from all different ranks in the society to phase out its obviously outdated policy. Estimates vary, but Wang thinks the policy change will only apply to about 10 million couples, small by Chinese standards. And most of them, he thinks, are unlikely to have a second child. Some are simply too old. For others, raising another kid is just too expensive. 
Yu Jushan, a retired maid, is chasing her two-year-old grandson around Shanghai Toys R Us. Yu would like to have another grandchild, even though this one is a handful. But she says the extended family just can't afford it. It's hard enough to raise one child. He's still little. Every month we have to spend six to eight hundred dollars on him. Baby formula, diapers, nutritional powder, fruits, and so on. It's a lot of expense. Yu's son drives a taxi cab and makes at most eight hundred and twenty dollars a month. That's in a city where home prices, already crushing, have jumped more than twenty percent since October last year. According to Chinese custom, men must buy a home before they can marry. He wonders how her grandson will afford it. When he grows up, he'll have to find a wife, buy an apartment, and a car. For boys, these things are non-negotiable. If you don't have money, you'll need to borrow it from other people in order to buy a home. The thought of buying a home really gives me a headache. Provincial officials will roll out the new policy over time. Wang Feng, the demographer. Expects it will result in just another one to two million babies annually over the next several years. Frank Langford, NPR News, Shanghai. For more international coverage, you can listen to your local NPR station. You'll find a list at our website, npr.org. While you're there, you can find more international stories by clicking on News and World. For NPR News, I'm Kevin Beasley.